Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I do think a book is a dream realized. You know, you, you're having your story told and being the person to help make that happen is it's such an incredible feeling. Hello and welcome to The World As It Should Be, a podcast in which we ask our guests to tell us what they would change to help create their perfect world. By listening to what they'd like to change, we'll hear more about who they are, what they do and what inspires them. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind Prima Donna, a uniquely anarchic and joyous festival of everything creative. My name is Shona Abianka and I'm a book publicist working with some of the most thought-provoking authors writing today. I'm Catherine Riley, a writer and the director of the Prima Donna Festival. We're delighted to be your guides on this podcast adventure. The world as it should be from Prima Donna. Catherine Cho was born in the United States to Korean parents and grew up in Kentucky. She spent time in New York and Hong Kong before settling here in London. Catherine studied English at university, but her first career was in corporate law. She then moved to publishing, working at Curtis Brown Literary Agency and then at the Madeleine Milburn Literary Agency. She wrote her first book, Inferno, about her experience of postpartum psychosis following the birth of her son, Cato, which was published last year. Catherine has just announced plans to open a literary agency of her own, which we'll hear more about shortly. Catherine, welcome to the Prima Donna podcast. Before we start on your three things to create the world as it should be, let's talk about today's very exciting news <laughs> that you're launching your own literary agency. Yes, thank you. I, I am really excited. Um, yeah, it was very serendipitous, actually. I, I hadn't planned on announcing today, but Yes, a very busy day. <laughs> you said, I love being a fairy godmother and making wishes come true. I read somewhere that a book is a dream realized and it's such a privilege to be able to be part of that. Is that what drove you to open your own agency? Exactly, actually. Yes, I. there's no feeling like calling someone and being able to tell them that their book is going to be published. I I do think a book is a dream realized. You know, you, you're having your story told and being the person to help make that happen it's, it's such an incredible feeling um can you tell us more about the process of opening an agency like how, how does that happen do, do you how, how do you go about it have you have you poached people are people going to be <laughs> furious at you <laughs> <laughs> no I mean I know famously that's what happened to JK Rowling <laughs> oh, right. the, the agent left and took like half the staff as well mm. as JK with him but anyway um no I, I didn't do that I mean I it's actually very um the barrier to entry is surprisingly low. Um, I had an idea for an agency and a vision for what I wanted. And, you know, I I have my own list of clients and, you know, I was lucky enough that, you know, some of them believed what I wanted to do and are going to follow me. And yeah, and basically it's just about announcing that I am open to submissions and just seeing where it goes from there. Hmm. Do you have um, a USP? So it's called paper literary. Is that right? Yes. So I had several reasons for naming it paper. Paper because I wanted it to be something elemental and that kind of idea of how much there can be in a blank page. Um, Also, the elements that make up paper are C-H-O, which is my last name, which which is a bonus. (laughs) Um, But also, I just love the idea that, you know, paper is such an ancient material, um, Mm -hmm. but the fragments of a piece of paper can last for hundreds of years. I, I find that just really fascinating where I was. 
we we mentioned at the top of the of the podcast about you switching from law to publishing um, and I wanted to ask you a bit more about that how, how did that come about what what was your kind of career journey yes um I was an English major in college and I graduated knowing that everybody said that you could do anything with a with an English degree but not knowing what that actually was um and so I went to law school and it was during the financial crisis so that also seemed like a very reasonable thing to do. And I think they said there were a record number of applicants going to law school that year. Um, I went to law school in Hong Kong as well, which I guess, yeah, there's a whole other reason behind that. But yes, I was there. And then um, when I graduated from law school, I had spent two summers doing these corporate, I guess, what I don't even know what they call legal placements. And it was just the the worst the worst kind of work experiences ever because you realize as a corporate lawyer, your job really is to wait around for the bankers and then the bankers wait till the very last moment and then they just cause panic because they need to get this done right away. And as a lawyer, then you cause even more panic because and it's just, it's the worst kind of experience. And there's a lot of photocopying and it just, it's just, it was, it was awful. <laughs> it sounds very stressful. It as was well. <laughs> really stressful. I found it really stressful because you had to have a, a very high level of detail to very mundane things. Um, and that combination mm. is not really my strong suit. And you have to always keep track of your hours, billable hours, which I hated doing as well, because it's just every time I wrote down what I'd done for 10, 15 minutes, it's just like an existential <laughs> crisis about it. Like I just spent 10 minutes <laughs> doing this. Yeah, so awful. <laughs> so I was like, you know, maybe I will go into politics. And this was during the Obama era and everything felt super oh, positive. Wow. And my family at that point lived in Northern Virginia near DC. So when I moved there, I found a job um, at a lobbying firm um, working for a lobbyist. And I was there for a year and I learned so much, but I think I definitely learned that I just, I wasn't a good lobbyist because I didn't like arguing for things I didn't necessarily think were good. (laughs) And I think as a lobbyist, Mm. you kind of have to, not saying that you have to be immoral or whatever, but you have to kind of be okay with letting things slide because this is how the way politics works and something that you might not believe in will be good for something later. And I just really hated that feeling and I didn't want to become cynical. And so I I really took stock and thought about what could be something that I really enjoyed doing. And I went back to, you know, being an English major and reading books. And I said, you know, if I can work in publishing, you know, I, I really think that's something I would really enjoy. And I didn't know actually that agents existed at the time. I only knew about editing. Um, so I went to New York and crashed on people's couches and met a lot of editors. And they all said that because I had a law degree that maybe I should go into agenting. And that was very serendipitous because I do love the agenting aspect. So what, what's next? Is it, is, is it your agency? Is it your writing? What, what, is it both? What, what's, what's your first love? I think love? my first love is agenting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I do love writing and the whole experience of writing the book has been really incredible. But I have to say... You know, it's funny because everyone's been asking me, you know, what's next? What what are you going to write next? But my brain is completely empty. I have nothing else to say. Um, I you have also yeah, just maybe a baby. that might be it too. But yeah, I just you know, I don't have any other ideas, and I don't think I necessarily have a a brain for fiction. Um, just because I think that whole process of creating a world and characters sounds really daunting to me. Um, and yeah, so I and I personally love 
that whole editing process when it's not my own work. So I think agenting is my first love. And so, yeah, the writing is on the back burner and the focus is going to be on really finding stories and, and novels and yeah, things like that. Yeah. And that's more than a full-time mm. job, I imagine. I think that's the other element is that it's very hard to, to write, um, when you're doing something like agenting because you're you get so many submissions and you have so many voices mm. it's I think you have to be able to really shut it off and so I'm really inspired mm. by any anyone who does that so reading Inferno there was a sentence that really struck me that reminds me of what you've just talked about which was when you were handed a pen um in the institution where you were being held initially and you said having it made you feel less, less suffocated because you could write in your journal and it was like a window had been opened. Yes. Yes. I'm um, sure. That, I mean, has that fed into your dream of having an agency? Definitely. I mean, I, you know, I said in the agency announcement that I wanted to be involved with stories and that's exactly what it is, is I think there's something really powerful about words and stories and having experienced that firsthand, just you know, being in a place where I was suffocated and finding that kind of freedom that writing and expression mm. gave. So exactly, that's a lot of the motivation behind it. Can you t can you remember where you were and what happened when you found out your book was going to be published? Yes, I was watching Six, the musical, <laughs> <laughs> with a group of people and um, nobody knew that I'd written a book except for maybe my agent. And Nobody knew it was on submission. So I was kind of, wow. I was working and feeling a bit sick because I knew that also because I, I have the, maybe the curse of too much knowledge. I know exactly how it works. Mm -hmm. So I knew my agent had sent it out. I knew that she was waiting for emails and responses to come in. So that day was quite um, tense. And yeah, I, I got an email from my agent in the US who actually closed the auction first. And I was stepping out of the musical and I looked down at my phone and she just said, yep, it's, we've got three offers in and we're going to go with this one. And I was just, it, it was such a, a, a wild feeling, really. I can imagine. That's so amazing. I hope you went out for a drink with your friends. I did. So I pulled <laughs> two of them and I was like, I really need to have a drink with you. And I think, I think we, we talked our way into some fancy bar and <laughs> yeah, it was really nice. Do you want to just run us through the first thing that you would do to make the world as you feel it should be? Yes. Um, I did really enjoy this exercise, although I have to say my initial, I think, suggestions were very whimsical and probably impossible. <laughs> but so my first suggestion was to encourage empathy is in some way, I don't want to use the word force, but encourage people to share a meal together, a long conversation together. And it it's something I thought about, you know, growing up uh, in Kentucky, they had this annual derby breakfast, which they hosted at the Capitol. And it was basically this free-for-all with like, these huge tables and seats. And people would come from all over the state uh, just to have eggs and grits and ham. And you would be sitting at this table with just all these different people. And it was just like the sense of community. And I think amazing. It is amazing, although apparently they don't do it anymore. Because <laughs> right. I, I was like, oh, I have really fond memories of going as a kid. And I just think, you know, often I hear people talk about, I can't believe, you know, someone out there in the world feels this way, especially in the U.S., particularly where it's so divided. And the thing is, half the country does feel a certain way and the other half doesn't. And they can't imagine mm. why. And I think sometimes 
especially with like social media and Twitter and it just, I find it really sad that people aren't willing to have a long conversation with someone to really try to see their point of view. I think just villainizing somebody for their opinion, you know, however abhorrent their views might be. And I, I think that goes on both sides. I think both sides feel that way about the other side. So I just think that if you are kind of forced to have a meal together, you find out actually there's something I think in that action of talking and sharing food that encourages conversation. Mm. I guess it brings it right down to the basics of we are all human and we all need to eat. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. We all need to eat. And yeah. And, you know, obviously in, in terms of how it would actually work in practice, I thought maybe like the eat out to help out scheme where there's restaurants that have to give free food and you have to show up with someone you don't know, or I don't know, like all over the, or maybe there's some kind of tax credit where if you go and you're, you're, you've given your name to be randomly drawn from a hat to have a meal with someone. But I, I just think there's a possibility that, you know, if people actually have that sort of conversation with one another, then there could be more understanding. I love it that you've thought through the practicalities. Oh, yeah. I, guess, I guess often don't do that. They just say things oh, yeah. like abolish national borders, and yeah. which is fantastic. But yeah, I love it that you thought about how we would actually implement this. That's, that, you get extra points for that. Oh, great. <laughs> um, it's interesting that you talk about social media that comes up a lot on this podcast as a, as a, as a polarizing, you know, negative uh, tool, really. I really think so. I think it's dangerous because especially Twitter, it's such an immediate reaction and often people react to things just like a like or, you know, they comment angrily about something, but actually the nuances are lost mm-hmm. and it doesn't promote nuance. So Absolutely. Yeah. I often think yeah. on Twitter there should be that button, you know, when you try and delete something that says do you you know, there should be something that says do you actually want to tweet this yes <laughs> or it, it gives that you a save gap so many <laughs> right it gives you like 10 minutes to think yeah. about it <laughs> think about it yeah. <laughs> that can be one of your three things Shona. I definitely need it um <laughs> so Catherine do you are you a big host like do you love throwing dinner parties and have you invited people that wouldn't necessarily mix normally I would like to say that I'm a host um I get really stressed to be honest, I'm so, I'm like the worst type of host. So well, actually, my my husband is great at mixing people. He's kind of known for being that person where he has lots of different friends from lots of different places. And I'm also kind of guilty of not wanting to force interaction, whereas he's very much like, let's just invite this person and they might not get along with that person, but that's fine. Like, you know, and I think, and also it's nice because he's from a completely different like he works in science and academia and I'm in publishing. So we have different groups. So we try to kind of throw them together and see what happens um, to varying degrees of success. But I, I, but to be honest, you know, I, I probably do still live in a bubble, you know, I, and I definitely know I do. I mean, the friends that I grew up with have such different lives than what I have, you know, like I have friends who were in the military or serving in Iraq or are working at warehouses because there's a lot of fulfillment centers in Kentucky. And to be honest, that's a world that I, I really don't have much experience with or contact with. Do you think that being brought up by immigrant parents in the US influences this choice? You know, you had to you, you had to cross cultures, I guess, growing up, different foods, different yeah, rituals and stuff definitely. like that. Definitely. I mean, we were my parents are Korean. We grew up in a very rural part of Kentucky. Um, that in itself was unusual. And, you know, 
always I felt like an outsider, but, you know, my parents were very religious. So we went to church and they had like potlucks and I'm sure, you know, sometimes my mother would bring something Korean just, you know, because, (laughs) and, you know, I'm sure sometimes people in the community were kind of, you know, curious about us, but we were really welcomed. And I think people saw the shared qualities that we have. And, um, and I spent my summers going back to Korea as well. And so they're also feeling like an outsider. So I think there is something about kind of feeling like an outsider where when you're in those situations, you, you know, you have a understanding maybe of what the commonalities are. Mm. And did your parents, were they open to sharing tables and meals? Did you have, often have people at home who didn't share the same values or were not religious, for example? No, I mean, my parents, um, they they wanted to create this bubble, <laughs> intentionally so. So my parents, we didn't have any media or outside influence, so no TV and, you know, what I read was restricted. So they wanted to kind of keep us as separate as possible. I suppose the one exception was taking us to church and having the weekly, there were a lot of potluck dinners and things. But in terms of our house, it was it was quite isolated. And what was that like at school? Like, did you have friends over or? No, I never had friends no. over. And I remember always being really upset because I wasn't allowed to do sleepovers. Mm. Um, yeah. So so you couldn't go to other people's houses either? Yeah, I couldn't. I mean, I could go for a little bit, but I wasn't allowed to spend the night. That was like a very clear oh. distinction. And I remember just feeling really kind of upset about that. It's funny, food is such an interesting memory, isn't it, when you're a child? I I mean, I'm Indian, my parents are Indian, and our treat would be getting, having something English, like to have fish and chips one day, or for my mum to make spaghetti or something. But, you know, there'd always be chilli in it, and it would always be (laughs) spicy, and it would always have an Indian twist, or um, did you ever eat non, like, did your parents cook non-Korean food? Yeah, my parents, I mean, they were both very busy so actually um every day after school my mom took us to mcdonald's where we were allowed to have one hamburger no soft drink or fries (laughs) so to be honest the western food experience was very much i think just for sheer convenience because korean food can be time consuming um so yeah i I did have a lot of western food growing up has that put you off mcdonald's now (laughs) i actually still am very nostalgic about mcdonald's i love like i love having like the breakfast and yeah i I love mcdonald's (laughs) excellent from from that um interesting parental (laughs) i know (laughs) uh we're going to move on to your second uh thing that you changed to create the world as it should be which is somewhat related to what you just said do you want to talk us through it yeah so my second suggestion was it started out initially vague but it's about um in encouraging shared parental responsibility um and I know my perspective is probably a bit of a narrow one but it's really surprising to me when I see my friends um who have children when they decide to go on maternity leave how much um the kind of really traditional parental roles um just that division of responsibility, um, it really falls on women and mothers. And I think that's been really apparent uh, with the pandemic as well, just in terms of the statistics of the women who are dropping out of the workforce. Um, so I, I did do some reading about this, and apparently, actually, the shared parental leave program we have in the UK is not the, the best way to go about it. I think they say the estimate is only 2% to 4% 
of of families are actually able to use it. And it's partly because of the way it's structured with the transferring leave. Um, I won't go to the details, obviously, but um, I think ideally it would just be that men and women um, or I guess either, you know, both parents, um, partners are able to take uh, an equal leave, that they're treated the same way. Um, And I think that's something that we're very lucky because with my partner, his workplace treats um, both parents the same because they don't want to, um, I guess, in the hiring process, they don't want to cause any kind of confusion. Um, Sorry, the word is blanking on me, but they don't want to cause any preferences. So we were able to um, share our leave, but it's something that financially, I think, really has to be encouraged. Um, And I want to say that when it becomes more common, then perhaps there would be a trickle-down effect where both parents can take an equal role in the raising of children. Yeah, I think that all the research shows, doesn't it, that basically you have to make it a use it or lose it thing because otherwise there's yes. there's so many, there's cultural factors like this uh, this idea that we, you know, work is the most important thing, which hopefully the pandemic is, if there's any positives come out of the pandemic, we might have unpacked that a little bit. Men generally get paid more, there's still a pay gap, so men get paid more, so it makes more sense for them to stay in the employed, you know, in the workforce Uh Anyway, blah 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 blah. But yeah, I it's that that inequality about childcare and and responsibility about children is absolutely it's so apparent, isn't it? After the year that we've mm. just had, it's so kind of being reinforced. Um, yeah, it really is, and it, it's really sad because I think it's really set us back. Decades, yeah, potentially. Yeah. yeah. What was your experience of parenting during the pandemic? I mean. Yeah, so I had my daughter in November, um, and as I oh, thank you. Um, yeah, as I say, I I we're very lucky because my partner's workplace they have that opportunity, so we were able to split um, our leave, um, which I realize is a very privileged thing to be able to do. And but I mean, even then, I think just because so much of parenting can fall on one person naturally, in terms of just the language that's used, whether it's like the groups that you, t- you go to, whether it's, you know, where there are changing rooms, it, it just everything's kind of built in a certain way and an entrenched way. And mm-hmm. I don't know how you begin to change that. But I think unless you're actively really trying to make an effort to address it in a relationship, it can very easily become skewed. And, you know, it perpetuates these ideas that, you know, women or mothers are the ones who are better at things. Um, Mm. And I've thought about it a lot also because I've had a daughter and I was just trying to imagine her future and it would make me really sad if that's the assumption that she's going to grow up to to live Mm. with. Yeah. Do you think that 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 assumption, which is, as as you say, totally ingrained still in in culture and the culture we live in, do you think that burden of expectation that women be mothers, be good mothers is a route to mental ill health and I'm obviously you know you write about that in Inferno um a little mm-hmm. bit well not that directly <laughs> but you, you write that's the nature of the, that's the subject of the book do you think that's underpinning some of the stuff around mental ill health for, for mothers I think definitely I think there is still this expectation that to be a mother means to be endlessly giving and to be self-sacrificing that's kind of our idealization of the mother figure and by doing that, it requires just, you know, there's a lot of shame that kind of perpetuates it. If you're not 
giving yourself completely in this way. Um, and I think, you know, that sets up a very dangerous um, expectation, um, and especially for mental health. And I think exacerbated by social media um, and kind of seeing certain portrayals of motherhood and women having it all, you know, that, that kind of myth. And yeah, I, I do think that underpins a lot of the, mm. the and not I not have. just giving to the child, is it? It's giving to their partner. It's giving to their families. It's giving to their friends. There's a exactly. lot of pressure. It's a, it's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Um, do you think? I mean, growing up in Korea, it's quite interesting. Do you? What's your work ethic? Do you feel when you when you grew up? Do you feel your parents felt they had to work extra hard? Do you think it's different living in Kentucky and the way you see people? Americans like where the east and west divide it is interesting I mean my parents are very hardworking. I mean but also they're very privileged because their work is something they're passionate about they're both they research they're in academia um so but it's true that for them kind of their work there is no question about the importance of work and I think I was surrounded especially with my uncles or aunts this kind of model of you work hard um, in order to, to I guess, progress or to live. Um, and so, and also in, in America, I think work is very much a large part of your identity as well. Um, and it's something that, you know, I found really interesting moving to England in, and London especially is, I think the expectation is really different and, I, you know, really great actually. I think it's much healthier. Um, Do you? Do you think it's different in London? Because here there's a lot of talk about burnout being a badge of honor and how yes I've heard yeah yeah no I do think it's different I think um you know just I mean I suppose these are very anecdotal uh but the idea that you should take holidays you know that you go on a holiday is you know I feel like in London my colleagues were very much about we go on a summer holiday and that wasn't really a given in the U.S. especially because in the U.S. Mm. you get maybe 14 days of paid leave and wow yeah I know it's just nuts or like I remember one of my jobs we had Thanksgiving day off that's a Thursday but then we were expected to be in the office on Friday which is like why you know why can't you just take you know so and I think that idea of bank holiday weekends is you know it's great and I think um or Christmas being like everything is closed it's very hard to find a day I think actually Mm. you don't find a day in the U.S. where everything is closed like that there's no rest no yeah there really isn't it's the american dream i know (laughs) (laughs) um okay let's move on to your third uh your third movement for change can you talk us through this yeah so i i really and i guess this links back to the power of story and of books and i guess the idea is just books for everyone um particularly for children um, I'm happy to say that this idea actually exists um, already, which is Dolly Parton's mm. Imagination Library, um, which I found out is actually in parts of the UK as well, which I wasn't yeah. aware of that. Yeah. So she started this program in Tennessee and you register your child and from birth until they're five years old, they get a book mailed to them at home every month. Um I think that's just incredible, an incredible yeah. idea. I, I, you know, obviously we have libraries and resources, but there's something really personal, I think, about a book coming to your home and just having that access um, is a really, really, I think, powerful thing. Um, 
Right, and not all children grow up in a home where their parents take them to the library. Exactly, or being able to go Mm. to, yeah, and like having something of your own, I think, is something really nice. It's for you. Um, And, you know, if that idea could be, you know, spread for everyone, so it includes adults as well, I think think that just would be really great. I mean, I, I love seeing, like, they had those books on the tube or they have, you know, those little places like on a street corner where there's just a stack of books that you can take. I just, I love that idea that, you can spread things that way and that, you know, encourage people to, to pick up a book, to take a book. And, you know, I think that can be really, I think it's a really powerful thing. Yeah. You say that your mum grew up with no books. Yeah. So my mom grew up in post-war Korea. Um, at, well, as did my father as well, but my mom in particular, she told me um, she didn't have anything as a child. You know, they, they didn't have any toys, no and no books. And that was kind of the thing that she was really the most regretful about. And she was kind of expected to entertain herself. And she said she didn't know how to read until she was maybe seven or eight. Mm-hmm. And I think she was just saying that there was kind of a lost opportunity because as a child, you have such an imagination, you have all these ideas. And, you know, the stories I remember the most are the ones that I heard when I was a kid. And so she didn't have that. And so I think um, thinking about her and kind of when she did discover all these books, like even now she loves reading children's books. Um, like she just loves kind of this, she has that feeling of wonder. And I think she kind of imagines what it would have been like if she'd read that when she was a child. I think um, I thought of her when I thought of that third That's suggestion. Really lovely. Mm. Um, how important is writing and reading to, to you and to your health, mental health? Can you tell us about a bit more about the process of writing Inferno, which is so rich in storytelling. And you began, um, as Shona mentioned, you began writing it in note, in note form um, whilst yes. on the psychiatric ward. Um, yeah, so I started keeping a journal um, when I was in the psychiatric ward, um, mostly just to, to make sense of who I was and what mm. was happening. Um, and it was, I think in my recovery, I was still very depressed and, and I spent a couple of months in bed. And I was thinking I would like to write an article about the experience. Um, but I realized that actually you couldn't really explain a mental breakdown without knowing the full context of something. So that's when I decided to start writing it as a book. Um, and for whatever reason, maybe it was just that sheer motivation of it. I wrote the first draft within a couple months. Um, it was almost like a trance where that's, you know, that's what I did. Um, then after I found um, my agent, I went back and kind of honed it. And we added in a lot more of the storytelling and the myths and expanded it. Um, but I always knew what I wanted the structure to be, which is that I wanted it to start in the ward as present day and then to flash back um, so that the point that you reached the psychosis, you understood maybe who I was and what the experience was. I do think that's one of the most powerful things about the book is that right at the start, you don't or you don't realise right at the beginning that you're actually on the ward until right. that sentence that says, which is where I am, where I'm writing this now. And it yes. does kind of bring the reader crashing into the present. It's interesting. My editor actually wanted to take out that line and I, I, I really insisted on it because I just thought that's kind of the whole point. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that. Thank, I'm, I'm glad that resonated because that's, yeah, that was my intention is to really ground it into a place. Um, I was going to ask you, Catherine, 
one of the bits that was quite moving was the note in your pocket with the four things that you knew were real. Who yes. wrote those things? So I wrote right. them myself. That was one of the first things I wrote. Um, before I had a pen, for some reason, there was a marker in my room. And obviously my memory is maybe not the most reliable, but I just remember what waking, you know, as I woke up in this place, not knowing what happened, it was really was like a scene from a film, just this empty room and really having just no idea where I was or what was going on and just feeling really panicked and trying to figure out those things I could ground um, that are grounding. And I just have this memory of kind of writing those things to kind of at least ground myself and feel like I knew what was happening to me, where I was. Thank you so much, Catherine. That was so interesting. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today. The world as it should be from Prima Donna. as it should be from Prima Donna.